You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hello, Resonate. Uh, glad you're here today. My name is Matthew Young. I'm excited to get to be here with you today. Um, I'm a pastor in Moscow with one of our Resonate sites, and uh, stoked to get to continue through this sermon series we've been in this summer with uh, called The Red Letters, where we're looking at the words of Jesus and what they mean for us today. Uh, the passage we get to look at today, I think, is really helpful. And I, the reason I think it's helpful is because it's talking about something we do a lot of, and that is uh, we love to rank things. I know you feel this way. Every conversation, if you're ever looking for uh, a good topic of conversation, maybe you're on a road trip, maybe you're hanging out with some new people, uh, or some old friends you need something to talk about, you can always say, hey, what's your favorite? Let's rank the best blank. Let's talk about the best breakfast cereals. That's a great conversation to have. Or, uh, you know, let's talk about, hey, what are your top five favorite songs of all time? Or what are the most beautiful places you've ever been? Uh, you start ranking. These are the things that I have familiar, familiarity with, uh, and this is what I think is the best ones. We love to rank things. Uh, we also love to rank people. Um, another great conversation to have is, hey, who do you think is the greatest sports star uh, in this particular sport? Who's the best of all time? Or who's the best playing right now? Or who was the best this past season? We love that conversation. Sports radio is built on this. I listen to a lot of sports radio. And uh, it's built on who's the greatest, who's the best. Uh, you know, when you get to football, at this point, we all agree Tom Brady's the greatest, uh, unfortunately. And everybody who don't doesn't have Tom Brady on their team or on their fantasy team uh, hates him and is really disappointed to have to say that. But it's, it's, there's no argument. We all know that it's true. Um, but then you can turn to basketball and you can get to some heated conversations uh, about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. And there are people out there who don't believe it's Michael Jordan. And those people rank the lowest and the, the worst people ever. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, there's lots of great conversation to have. Heated conversation sometimes, interesting conversation where we begin to rank people based on their accomplishments and, and what they've done and what's their stat line and, uh, and, and you know different categories that we begin to say, this makes this thing the greatest. And oftentimes we also do this to ourselves. We rank ourselves. Uh, I've, there's been part seasons of my life when, uh, when I would walk into a room and I would begin to rank myself based on the other people in the room. You know, I look at all the other guys in the room and uh, I haven't done this in a while because honestly, I don't rank as well as I used to. But um, look, at, look at all the other guys in the room and think, okay, who can I take in here? If, if we were to like go at it, who, you know, get into a big fight, who, who could I beat up? Uh, yeah, you know, that's what you do when you're daydreaming in class or whatever. And, you, you know, trying to think about or you're at work or somewhere and... Uh, of all the customers who came in today, how many could I beat up? I know, it's a strange thing. But um, we find ourselves doing that sort of stuff. Or maybe it's who am, who's the best looking person in here? Who's the greatest person in this room? Who's the, who's the most popular? Or who's, uh, who's the most successful? What, we all do this. I know that this happens in our minds and our hearts. We may not say those things out loud, but we find ourselves ranking ourselves and ranking each other, comparing ourselves to one another. Well, it's, it's a thing that we do, and it's common for us to do, but it's something that people have been doing for ages, uh, probably since the beginning. Um, and certainly, when we read the stories of Jesus and his disciples, we see that they were doing that very thing. And so we're going to look at this, and, and um, a question that the disciples bring up to Jesus, and they're asking, hey, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest uh, in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in your eyes, Jesus? Um, who's the goat is what they want to know. 
um, for us as people, when we begin to rank things, one of the things I think real common for us in our American culture and society is, uh, is really in our, based on our individualism. Who's the greatest on their own? Who can make it on their own? There's a TV show that I love. The past two summers, this has been my, my go-to TV show to watch um, called Alone. I don't know if you guys have watched this, but it's a, essentially a, a, a TV show where they put these people out in the wilderness uh, all by themselves. They give them a, a handful of tools, a limited set of, uh, of tools and things that they can use and, <clears throat> and, and see who can survive the longest on their own. And uh, it's a fascinating show to watch. I like to imagine myself in those scenarios, even though I know I do terrible. Um, but each of these uh, people, essentially, they, they say, "I'll try and make it and see how long I can see how long I can make it out here on my own." And uh, and when they feel like I'm done, I can't go any any longer. Then they have a satellite uh, phone that they pull out, and they uh, essentially they refer to it as tapping out. They say, "I'm done," I'm, uh, and they call somebody on the sat phone and says, "I can't do it anymore. Come and pick me up." Um, usually, uh, some of the people that, or a lot of the people that get uh, get um, out, that tap out, they come to a place where they are they're tired of being alone. They start thinking about their family, and they start thinking about, I don't want to be here by myself anymore. I thought that I could do this. I thought I could go further, uh, but I've discovered that I don't want to be alone. I want to be with people. Um, they went out there with all these survival skills and these things, and they thought, I could do this. I can make it on my own out there. I can make it by myself. And then when they got out there on their own, they realized, oh, I don't want to be here by myself. I would rather be with my people. I'd rather, rather be with my tribe. I'd rather be with my kids and my wife and, or my husband. And I miss them so much that it's, that's more important to me than being here and winning this money or, or getting the, the, the cred uh, of being able to make it out here on my own. The people that I've seen, again, I've only, I've only watched a season and a half at this point, so you can tell me if I'm missing somebody or, or I don't have a full picture of it. But the people who do the, the, the best are the people who don't have a lot of connections back home. They don't have a large family that they begin to think about. They don't have somebody that they're missing. And so they're able to focus in and say, hey, I'm, I'm used to being alone. Uh, I don't love anybody back home. I just love myself and being here by myself. And those people seem to make it longer. Uh, it's interesting how, how that plays out, that the people, that they rank themselves based on how well they do on their own. Uh, there's even, you'll see the people that are interacting with these cameras that they have to lug along with themselves throughout the woods, and they, they think about, you see them processing, like, I wonder what think people are thinking about me when they watch me do this. I wonder if they think I'm dumb for doing these things. I wonder if they think I'm weak as they process picking up that sat phone and hitting the button, as they say. They think about, what are people going to think of me if I go home now? What are people going to think of me if I make this decision and it's a bad decision? What are they going to say about me on, the, on social media and on the internet and on the chat pages where everybody discusses alone and how they're doing? People are worried about uh, how they're going to be ranked among the other contestants and how they're going to finish. This is true of who we are. We do this. We rank ourselves. We compare ourselves to others. Uh, we want to see how good are we on our own. Well, when Jesus speaks to this, when the disciples bring this up, uh, he speaks to that reality. He speaks to our desire to do it on our own, our desire to be self-sufficient. And, uh, and, and he speaks about it pretty clearly and pretty bluntly. So if you have your copy of Scripture, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to read uh, quite a few verses out of this chapter where Jesus begins to discuss this topic with his disciples. And so Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. 
picks up right here. Um, you can see that we're in chapter 18, so we're getting towards the end of Jesus' life and towards the gospel narrative. Uh, in the next couple chapters, um, we find Jesus going into Jerusalem where he's arrested and, and crucified and, and began to see the end of the story, um, uh, of the gospel story. Um, but at this point, so we're getting near that, and, and he's, he's, he's traveling along with his disciples, and they, they get into this conversation. Verse 1. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, when he says that, they say that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, this is a, a phrase that Jesus had talked about throughout his teachings where he begins to talk about, I came to establish a new kingdom, my kingdom. Uh, it's better than the kingdom of this world, this kingdom that you all live in. In fact, I came to rescue out of that broken and dark kingdom you're living in and bring you into my kingdom, the kingdom of light. But he also tells them re repeatedly, and that's what he's about to do here, say, hey, my kingdom, the way we function in my kingdom, it's different. It's, uh, it's way different than the kingdom of the world. In fact, some people refer to it as the upside-down kingdom because it, sometimes it feels like things are backwards in Jesus' kingdom compared to way, the way things are in the kingdom of this world. So he goes on. They say, who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2. He called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change, underline that, unless you change, and become like, a little, like, like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So just before this, in chapter 17, some, an amazing thing had happened. It's a, an event called the Transfiguration where a couple of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, go up on this mountain with Jesus, and he essentially says, I want, you to, I want to show you who I am. And he begins to show him his glory, his, uh, his glorified state. He's bright and, like lightning, and, uh, and you know, they're amazed by that. Just after that, Jesus says, hey, we're headed to Jerusalem, and I want you to know I'm going to die. He says that in, in a manner of words, and, and of course the disciples are like, I'm not sure how to do that or what to, do, what to make of this. And then right after that, we pick up in verse 18, and they begin to talk about who's the greatest. It's interesting, in Mark's uh, version of this story, in Mark chapter 9, he says that they're, they're actually, as they're walking along, uh, the disciples actually begin to argue about who's the greatest among them, who's the greatest among them. And so you begin to put all this together, the timeline, the conversations they're having. They just got done, Jesus just got done talking about, hey, I'm about to die. We're headed to Jerusalem. They just saw how amazing he was and this incredible experience. And so they're like, hey, He's that amazing. If he's going to die, now who's going to take over after he's gone? And they began maybe debating among themselves, like, which of you guys thinks we're the greatest? Well, it's got to be Peter, James, or John. We got to have this experience with Jesus. They saw how amazing he was. And, uh, and so, you know, they seem to be Jesus' favorites. Maybe it's one of the three of them. Maybe they began to argue. But maybe they began to take sides. Who's on John's team? Who's on Peter's team? Who thinks James is the best? Like, so uh, you see this argument. Jesus, as they sit down after the day's journey, he begins to ask them in, in Mark's version. He's like, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And he begins to talk about um, these kids. And essentially the same story plays out where Jesus brings up this kid and says, hey, you need to be like this. Now, this, Jesus turning to that, Jesus picking up this kid and, and setting him among them. Maybe, maybe there's a larger crowd. Maybe that was a, a child of one of the disciples and their families that were following Jesus along at this point. It, it, actually, the, this, the crowd of disciples was larger than just the 12 probably around them at this point. But he picks up this kid and sets it among them and maybe puts him on his knee or like they're all gathered around in a circle and puts this kid there. And so imagine this. You've got, uh, you've got Jesus sitting there. You've got this young child. You've got these 12 men or more uh, sitting around staring at him. 
and uh, the kid is there, and this is, you know, we don't know exactly how old it was, but imagine, you know, maybe snotty, dirty, been playing in the dirt, and, uh, you know, kids, they're, they're gross, you know, they can't control their bodily fluids, and uh, unclean and unkept, perhaps, um, and, and, you know, kids are just, they're gross, but also they're oblivious to it. They don't know any different. Uh, they don't know how to, you know, wipe their nose and comb their hair and do all the other things that full developed humans can do and uh you know and, and even as we think about kids in our own lives they don't know that they ruin our lives when they come into them uh they have no idea the sacrifice we make for them they just they're just there and they're dependent on us they don't know that you know you had to sell their truck and buy a minivan uh for them uh they don't realize that and recognize what that means for you and and all the issues that that brings up um and so the kids are just there so you have this kid there and he's just like standing there you know and maybe maybe Jesus gave him a toy, which was probably a stick because they're, in the first century it wasn't a billion dollar industry revolving around kids and giving them everything they uh, could possibly want and need and all these special toys and gadgets and things to help take care of them. That didn't exist then, so it's like, uh, here, while you stand here and we talk about you, here, play with this rock. Um, so they're standing there looking at this kid and, and, uh, and thinking about it, and Jesus is saying, you got to be like this. He probably just maybe pause for a moment and let that settle in. Uh, you got to be like this. Now, what we need to know about kids in the first century is children were not honored in that culture. Again, as I said, in our culture, like we do a lot for our children. We, we baby them. Uh, we take care of them. We pamper them. We protect them in lots of different ways. We give them lots of things to entertain them. And uh, we, we do lots of things around them to, to make sure that they're safe and um, even even the difference between when I was a child versus what children have now. I remember sometimes it's like, yeah, wear a seatbelt if you want, you know, when I was really young. Uh, I remember um, in the back of my mom's station wagon when I was super little, just laying down, taking a nap out on the back of this station wagon and us getting a little fender bender. And my mom was freaked out, like, are you okay back there? And I was asleep. I was taking a nap and uh, just laying down, not belted in, not on a booster seat, nothing. Uh, that's just the way it was back in the day. And, uh, and so, anyways, even to this day, like, we pamper, protect, take care of our kids. Kids in the first century were not honored, honored like that. Um, uh, and so one of the points that Jesus is trying, or actually um, Jesus is, is pushing the disciples to do is like start considering kids better. Uh, in fact, the, the fact is the next chapter in chapter 19, um, a bunch of parents start bringing their kids to Jesus to almost so he will bless them, put his hands on them and, uh, you know, Jesus, pray for my kids, protect them, kiss them. Uh, um, and all these people bringing kids to him and the disciples are like, hey, get these dang kids away. They're all dirty and gross. Don't you know who this is? This is Jesus. He's important. Don't touch him. Don't bring your dirty kids around here. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Bring the kids to me. I love the kids. And, and so, uh, but they were not honored. Even the disciples had a hard time with this, and Jesus is trying to challenge their understanding of that. But he, more broadly, in the first century, children were vulnerable, very vulnerable. Uh, they were in, you know, uh, they didn't have the protections that we have today in their laws. They don't have protections that we have today in, um, in, in just uh, the reality of how their, their world functioned. Um, uh, and so, Essentially, for parents, kids were valuable because they, at some point, they would add to, uh, they would add labor to the family and to the family business. At some point, they'd come to the point where, hey, these kids help, you know, contribute to the army that we are as a family. They help bring defense to our family and what we have. Um, the more kids you have, the more eventually protection you have over your stuff, the more help you have on the farm or the family business, whatever it is. So they had value, but not yet kind of thing. Um, parents often disregarded uh, their children 
Possibly that was because there was a high uh, child mortality rate. Um, parents didn't know who was going to make it, and so they tried. Maybe, maybe they had. Uh, they tried to keep emotionally distant from the kids because that kid may not be here forever. It's a sad reality of the developing world today, probably in some ways, and as well as the reality for the first century. So they weren't valued, they weren't respected, they weren't honored. Um, and yet here's Jesus saying, you need to be like this. The reason Jesus uses this kid, as a, this child, as, a, as an object lesson, puts him there in front of him and says, look at this, be like this, is because um, if, if, what he wanted them to understand is that these, a, ch- a child doesn't make choices, um, it doesn't have control over their life. They can't. Uh, they're vulnerable. They're dependent on others. Um, and a child knows that. It's not, not long before a child understands, like, I have these parents in my life and they take care of me. They bring me stuff that I need. They provide the food that I need. Uh, if there is any protection, it's going to come from them. And so they're dependent on their parents. It's, that was true then and true today. And so Jesus is saying, unless you change to be like this child. So he's calling them out, you know, maybe knowing the baits they're having and they're wanting to know how do we become great. He says, if you want to be great, you have to change to be like this. You have to become like this. This term that he uses to change, to turn around, to stop being the way you are and instead be something different, um, is essentially the word we use uh, that means repent, to change direction, to turn around and move in a new direction. He's calling them to repentance in this moment. He's calling them to change. He's calling them to recognize their own vulnerability and their own dependence on God. And so as we ask this question, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom? What does it mean to be great? How do we become the goat, if you will, as these disciples asked Jesus? The first thing that Jesus would say, his first example here, is that if you want to be great, you have to recognize that you are incapable of getting there on your own. You have to recognize that you're incapable of getting there on your own. We as humans, we want to rank ourselves. We want to get credit for what we've done. We want to get credit for our good deeds. We want to get credit for our accomplishments. We want to be recognized for the degrees that we have and for the the things that we've accomplished, the places we've been, the people we know. We want to get credit for these things. We want to be ranked. We want to know who we're better than. We want to show that we are better than other people. We like doing that. And we want to be in the hierarchy. We don't want to be at the bottom of it. We want to be at the top. We want to climb the ladder. We want to be better than others. We want to be in control of ourselves and of other people sometimes. That's part of who we are and part of our brokenness. And Jesus says, that's not the way the things are. That's not the way the things are in my upside-down kingdom. That's not the way the things are. If you want to be great, it can't be like that. It has to be like this. And he points to the child. And so to be clear here, to be great, we have to embrace our vulnerability and our dependence on God. We have to recognize we can't get to this greatness on our own. We have to recognize our dependence on God. To not do this is to continue in our rebellion against God. It's been the reality since the Garden of Eden that we have chosen not to be dependent on God. Instead, try to be dependent on ourselves instead. To try to do it on our own. And that's been our issue with humanity. That's been the core of our sin, the core of our issue since the beginning. That we want to push God away and do it on our own. It's the root of all that's wrong in the world today. When we step back and we look at the world and we say what's broken and what's wrong and why are things as bad as they are? Because of us. Because we've made it this way. It's our fault because of doing this very thing. Of not being like a child and being dependent on God. Instead trying to be dependent on ourselves. To make it on our own to be better than someone else, and to want to get recognition for what we've done. So, 
Jesus comes in hot and he says, you got to be like a kid. A very challenging metaphor, very challenging uh, reality that he presents to the disciples in this moment. Then he goes on. He says, this is what this looks like. Not, uh, and, he, and he says it starting in verse 6. Um, this is what it looks like to be great. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 6 through 9. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus getting intense. Verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Wow. If it, would, it is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into fire. Eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. So Jesus, Jesus comes in hot again with a very, some very stern words, some very stark uh, contrast words um, where he, he presents this and uh, switches the metaphor from, if you notice that there in the first line, switches it from children to one of these little ones. So um, you may be quick to just think, oh, he just, it's just synonymous with he's still pointing to the kid, and, which is intense. If, again, you imagine that kid just standing there and Jesus starts talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off limbs, and you're like, whoa, Jesus, not in front of the kid. Come on, man, calm down. Maybe the kid's run along to play now, but uh, maybe he's standing right there. But he says, uh, he, he switches the metaphor just slightly, and he says, if you... Um, if anyone causes one of these little ones, uh, in the Greek there, it, it's clear that he's communicating about uh, disciples, young disciples. So not just, uh, not just talking about children, but he's talking about young disciples. So one of these young disciples who's chosen to see themselves as dependent on God. And he says, he gives a warning. If anyone causes someone who's like that, who says, I'm dependent on God, it causes that young disciple who's dependent on God and submitted and who's repented and changed and how they are doing things. If you cause that young disciple to stumble, uh, then it's better for you to drown. <laughs> Pretty harsh words. And then he says, even, even takes it a step further, if you cause yourself to stumble, if a limb of yours, if a body part of yours is causing you to stumble, get rid of it. It's better for you not to have that thing uh, and be in the kingdom than to have that thing and find yourself in rebellion against God. And so he's coming in hot, coming in with some stern words. Um, what he wants us to understand in this moment is to take sin seriously, to take sin seriously, and essentially to hate sin. Now, he's being a bit hyperbolic about cutting things off, and we know that because none of the disciples after this went and you know, cut their limbs off or whatever. The disciples weren't taking this seriously. They understood that he was being hyperbolic, making an example. Um, but it, to, to take Jesus seriously in what he's trying to communicate, we need to be, take it seriously, and we need to hate sin like Jesus hates sin, to hate it to that extent that we'd be willing to get rid of something. Um, so, you may be asking yourself, what does, have, what does this have to do with greatness? Well, our second point, if you want to be great, you have to be willing to give things up because they aren't what's best for others or for you. You have to be willing to give things up because they aren't what's best. They're sin. They're brokenness. They're leading to more brokenness and more pain and hurt for yourself and for others. You have to be willing to give those things up. The Apostle Paul has a great teaching on this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 8 and 9. begins to, to have this discourse about an issue that the church in Corinth was having. 
uh, at that point is in a, in a Greek city in Corinth, and there was a. It's very common to go into these temples uh, and to these idolatrous uh, temple worship to these idolatrous um, to these idols and idolatrous worship of these other gods. And uh, one of the things they do is they sacrifice these uh, this meat or these meals and say, "Here, God, I give you this this meal," kind of thing. Well, the God's not real. The statue's not real. It's not going to eat the meat. So after they presented it to uh, this fake God. Um, then they would go and eat the meal. And, uh, and Paul is essentially saying, well, I mean, it's just meat. It's not a real God. It's just meat. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, why not eat it? And so G- Paul's like, you know, meat's meat. I like meat. I like a good steak. I'll eat that meat. There's nothing wrong with it. It's permissible to eat that meat. However, for some of these young believers in the, in the Corinthian church, some of them in eating that meat, it would then cause them to fall back into their traditions and their rhythms of, of I- idolatry, of worshiping these idols, these other gods. And so he's saying, hey, if it's going to cause you to stumble, don't eat the meat. If it's going to cause someone else in your community to stumble, don't eat that meat. They're going to be like, hey, I'm confused. Why are you eating this meat from this temple uh, when it's been you know, sacrificed to this idol? And I don't understand. He'd say, hey, if it's going to cause confusion, it's going to cause these, these young believers to stumble. Just don't eat the meat. And Paul's like, I don't have to eat the meat. I could eat the meat, but I don't have to eat the meat. And I'm willing to give up this meat, this thing that I could enjoy, uh, this thing that I could get sustenance from, because there's nothing wrong with it. But I'm willing to give it up because it would cause someone else harm, cause someone else to stumble. And he says that. He's like, I'll do whatever it takes to win someone to the Lord. I'll do whatever it takes to serve others. Paul's communicating uh, Jesus' teachings in this passage, uh, how that plays out in his context. For us, in our context, this is a conversation we often have in, in our church, especially with young uh, collegiate and the collegiate portions of our church and, and leaders in, um, for our college villages. Uh, we have conversations about, hey, you need to be very careful about how you treat alcohol. Because on the college campus in the United States today, it is not a mystery, uh, alcohol is regularly abused, regularly um, leads to very, um, very bad things that happen on the college campus. People find themselves in terrible situations uh, because they've given themselves over to alcohol. They find themselves in a, uh, an unclear state and they do dumb things. Um, lots of brokenness happening and uh, lots of pain. I've heard lots of stories in my years of working with college students of terrible things that happened under the influence of alcohol. And so it need, we need to be careful about how we treat alcohol. Now, uh, the scriptures are clear. We should not be drunk uh, on, on alcohol. You shouldn't give yourself over to it to that point. And at the same time, alcohol in and of itself, alcoholic drinks in and of themselves are not sinful. Uh, Jesus drank alcohol. And so, uh, but with that, we have to be very careful. And so we communicate to our collegiate leaders, hey, be very careful because the way this is viewed and done in our culture and society and among your, your peers, uh, it's regularly abused, so you need to be very careful because you could drink it in a healthy way as a, uh, someone who's 21 or older and not get drunk and, uh, and not give yourself over to it. And yet someone else who's younger than you or someone else uh, who, who struggles with that temptation may say, well, I saw my spiritual leader doing this. Um, it's okay if I do that, but they don't have the, maybe the self-discipline or to stop when they need to or uh, to not have too many and find themselves in a dangerous place. And so the conversation we often have with our, our village leaders is say, hey, if you need to not drink so that you don't cause someone else to stumble, then don't drink. You need to be willing to give up this freedom that's permissible for you if you're 21 and if you're not getting drunk, uh, um, to be able to give up that freedom um, so that you don't cause someone else to stumble who may be struggling with this because it's a common struggle among college students today. 
So we had that conversation with our village leaders to be very careful with this. Uh, it's not the same conversation we would have with, you know, maybe our adult village leaders or um, not the same conversation maybe we'd have at other, other seasons or other times, but that's the specific conversation of applying what Jesus is teaching here to our context. To be able to say, uh, essentially, um, I need to be willing to give something up because, uh, because it's better um, for myself or it's better for someone else. Or to say it another way, because give things, give things up that aren't best for others uh, or for myself. To say, if it causes someone else to stumble, or if it causes me to stumble, it's better not to do it at all. It may be permissible, but it may not be wise or be what's best. Our culture says, don't give up things. Instead, get all you can for yourself. Our culture says, don't think about others, think about yourself. Our culture says, uh, if, if, the, if your pleasure, you seeking pleasure hurts someone else, hey, that's their fault, that's their issue, don't worry about them. Just do, uh, you aren't responsible for them, make them be responsible for themselves. Our culture says, just think about yourself, don't think about others. Jesus is saying, that's not okay. You need to consider other people. You need to think about other people and how your actions affect them. Um, so, to go back to what Jesus is trying to communicate here, to be great means to hate sin. <laughs> to hate sin. Hate things that lead to brokenness in your life and the lives of others. Uh, and this is a great prayer for you to pray. If you're saying, how do I need to grow in my relationship with God? How do I need to grow in likeness? How do I need to grow as a follower of Jesus? How do I need to be great? Jesus, help me to hate sin. Help me to hate brokenness. Help me to see it for what it is, to see how all the issues and the hurt and the pain that's happening in the world today is, is a result of sin. And to come to a place where I hate it. And I hate seeing it in other people's lives and I hate seeing it in my own life. To come to a place where you care more about protecting against sin in your life and others' lives than you do about getting your way and getting what you want. So, Jesus says, hey, this is what it looks like to be great in the kingdom to act like this, to be about these, these kinds of things. And then he says, he goes on, and in many ways he's saying, this is how you get this greatness. This is how you come to this place uh, where you can receive, uh, or you can be at a place where you can be great like this. He, he tells a parable. If you'll skip down to verse 12, Matthew 18, verse 12, he says this. What do you think, he says, asking them, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So Jesus turns to this parable. And it's a parable that he, in, uh, in, in Luke, um, he, he mentions this. Uh, and so it's a parable he probably told more than once in different scenarios. But, he, but he, he switches his metaphor once again from children to one of these little ones, these young disciples, to now he's talking about sheep. And, uh, and you know, talking about children and how they were not honored in the culture. Well, sheep were even less honored in the, in the culture. Sheep were even less honored than, than children. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were helpful for some meat and they were helpful for wool. Um, and, you know, if we were to rank sheep, as we do, uh, among the animals in... Uh, in the animal kingdom, uh, sheep would rank low on a lot of things. You know, they're good for meat and wool, but uh, when it comes to smarts, they do not rank high. Uh, sheep are dumb. And so he says, look at the sheep. If you've got these sheep, and as a, you know, you read throughout scripture, you see the metaphor of sheep and of shepherds regularly used in scripture to help communicate our relationship with God. And uh, oftentimes in the metaphors, we are the sheep um, in these metaphors. And certainly that's the case here. And so, 
he's saying, hey, what if there's this shepherd? He's got his sheep, uh, a herd of a hundred, and one of them is missing. A lot of times when we read this, this parable, uh, we're familiar with this parable, like there's these 99 sheep and this one is missing. And we tend to think about, well, what about the 99? I mean, that shepherd's just going to go leave that huge group of sheep to go and chase after this one troublemaker? And uh, who's watching after those 99? Um, in fact, in Luke's version, that's part of the point of his story. Uh, it's in a chapter in Luke um, where he tells three stories. One of them, he tells a story about the lost sheep, talks about the lost coin, and then tells a story that many of, us, many of us are familiar with, the story of the prodigal son, of the one son who leaves home, goes away, and uh, eventually he you know, ruins his life and he comes back to the father. And uh, there's this huge celebration at the end of that story, at the end of that parable, of the father welcoming the lost son home. And then he tells the story of the other brother who never left, who was there all along, who was essentially, he was one of the 99. And that other brother, the older brother, is really mad at the dad for throwing this huge celebration, saying, I never got a huge celebration, uh, and I was here the whole time. And why are you celebrating this, this wayward son who went away? I need you to know uh, that Jesus makes a point in that story to, ta- to point out uh, the heart of the older brother, that it was wrong for thinking like that. And he's using that illustration to point to the religious leaders of that day who were mad about Jesus pursuing sinners, pursuing outsiders, pursuing people that, the, that were marginalized, that were vulnerable in their culture and society, instead of paying attention or giving credit uh, to these religious leaders and all that they had done and all that they accomplished. Jesus pointed to them and saying, hey, that's not the way. That's not the right way. And that's not the way of the kingdom. And so essentially, if you read this story and you hear Jesus tell the story in this moment, you're like, yeah, but what about the 99? Who's taking care of them? Uh, you're missing the point. Um, in fact, one of the commentaries I was reading on this is like, by the way, you know, shepherds, they would work together in groups. They'd each have their herds of 100 or so, which is normal size of a, normal size of a herd, they say. Uh, but there would be other shepherds watching after the 99, so calm down. Uh, I, I guess that that was true, uh, is what this one commentator said. So that's not the point of the parable to say, hey, who's taking care of the 99? The point of the parable is to say, look at how this shepherd treats that one lost sheep. Now, if that's the scenario, he has a hundred sheep out there, which is a lot of things to keep track of. Um, he's got a hundred sheep, and they probably all look really similar, but he knows that there's one missing. He knows as he looks across his herd, and he says, hey, where's, in my flock, there's, there's one missing. Oh, I know who it is. And maybe he knows his sheep by name. Um, maybe he knows them. Uh, he knows what they all look like and the way they walk and what their tendency is within the, within the flock and where they tend to be. And this one's always in the middle of the flock. This one's always on the edges. This one's always wandering off. He's like, oh, and there's that one sheep again. I need to go find him. He knows his sheep well. He knows them by name. And he's willing to go out there and make himself vulnerable. Imagine what that sheep is going through in that moment. That sheep has found himself, maybe he was with the, with the flock, with the herd. They were going along, and, and then he saw this other patch of grass over. And he's like, man, that, that grass looks greener than this grass over here. I'm going to go check that out. That grass looks better. That grass looks amazing. I'm, from over here, that looks really great. I'm going to go check it out. And then they find themselves, and they wandered off. It's like, oh, when I got to that grass, it wasn't that great. But then I saw this other patch over here, and it looked even better. I'm going to go explore that and try that out. Oh, I look at that stream over there. I'm really thirsty. I'm going to go down there by that stream. And they got down there and realized, oh, this is not a stream that's good to drink. This is terrifying. It's like rushing water. Huh? And so the sheep's out there all by itself and, and vulnerable and alone and uh, defenseless, wandering out there. Uh, again, if I can talk about my favorite TV show of the summer, uh, there's an episode of Alone, and there's this woman, and uh, she had you know, built her shelter, and she was out finding food. She was doing okay. And then she was out one day, uh, looking for food and, and she came across a grizzly bear 
In that moment, the grizzly bear saw her and she saw the grizzly bear and she was terrified. She saw this massive beast and recognized in that moment how vulnerable she was, how defenseless she was about this, uh, against this huge animal. And, uh, and she just, she began to weep. She began to just, she was terrified in that moment of just, she was weeping. She was, she had, she pulled out her sat phone. She was ready to make the call because she was terrified. She recognized in that moment how vulnerable she was. She'd been that vulnerable all along. There were bears around her, her encampment the whole time. There were bears on the island the whole time. And, uh, and yet in that moment, she became, she became aware of it. She became aware of her vulnerability. Um, and I think, uh, imagine that sheep out there by itself. Then imagine the shepherd saying, I'm willing to leave uh, the comfort of the other shepherds, of our community of shepherds. I'm willing to leave this flock to go and make myself vulnerable out there in the wilds, out there in the wilderness, to go and rescue this one sheep, recognizing that, uh, um, that he could put himself in harm's way to go take care of this other sheep. And Jesus is telling this parable, because essentially he's pointing to himself. And certainly the, the, it hasn't all played out yet, and the, the, the disciples maybe didn't get it to the, to the full extent at this point. I think you know, in the, the chapters after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples began to put it together and think about all his teachings, and I'm sure they came back to this and recognized, like, oh, that's what Jesus was doing all along, that Jesus was the shepherd coming to rescue us. And certainly that's what he's trying to communicate, that Jesus sees us, and he came to get us. Jesus sees you, and he came to rescue you. And so he made himself vulnerable. He made himself forsaken by his community and by his friends, his disciples, and even by his heavenly Father. He made himself vulnerable and lost. He embraced lostness for us in our place. He said he's willing to risk uh, himself, put himself at risk, even unto death, so that he could rescue us. And this story, when the disciples ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is essentially saying, I am. I'm the greatest. Watch what I do. I'm the greatest. Watch how I live. I'm the greatest. Watch how I treat you. And then he also communicates to us for us to come into the kingdom, for us to receive uh, what Jesus is offering, for us to come to a place where we can be great in the kingdom, that we have to receive the rescue. We have to be like that sheep who receives the rescue. We have to know that we need help. To go back to that child uh, metaphor that he uses, we have to recognize our own vulnerability and our need for someone else to help us. So, point three, if you want to be great, you have to know that you need to be rescued. If you want to be great, you have to know that you need to be rescued. We have to recognize our own vulnerability. We have to be like children. We have to be like lost sheep and recognize that that's our reality. To be in the kingdom, we recognize that we, get the, we can't get there on our own. That no amount of our accomplishments, no amount of, no amount of our good deeds will Jesus say, oh, great, you earned your way in. No, no, we are like lost sheep out there, vulnerable, defenseless, wandering and lost. And we need someone to come and rescue us. To understand what it means to be great, we have to understand that's our place. And then, when then we need Jesus to make us great. We need to come to a place where we change the way I see, we see ourselves. We change the way we think about ourselves. We are a place of vulnerability, and we need God to rescue us. I don't know if you ever had an experience where you tried to help someone out, um, and they didn't want your help. Maybe it was you were helping someone else on 
uh, with their homework, uh, studying for a class, and you know how to under, you know understand the, the equations uh, to figure out this problem, or you read through their, you proofread their paragraph, and you see all kinds of issues, and you're like, hey, you need to change this sentence, this structure, you're not using this term correctly, or whatever. You're trying to help them, and they say, I don't want your help. Get away from me because you know you made them. You you uh, brought to light their vulnerability and the fact that they needed help. Uh, this happens with my kids sometimes. I see them struggling to do something the right way uh, in our house, whether it's clean their room or um, or maybe working with tools or whatever for the first time, and recognize like, oh, I need to help them and come alongside them. Like, no, no, I can figure this out on my own. Or even explain the rules to a game or something along those lines, where you say, hey, this is the right way to do this, and, uh, and they say, no, no, I don't want, I don't want your help. I'll figure it out on my own. Um, if you've had that experience, essentially that's many times how we treat God. We say, no, I don't want your help. I'll figure it out on my own. And then you'll be impressed with me. Uh, what God wants us to do is recognize we can't figure it out our own. We need his help. He's come to rescue us and for us to receive his rescue as the door into the kingdom of God and as the door into greatness in his kingdom, which is totally opposite of the way that things work in this world. But I also understand that talking about this and this teaching of Jesus is challenging. Um, and this talk about vulnerability is hard. Uh, there are many of you in our culture and in our society and in your, in your life, you feel vulnerable. You feel marginalized. You feel like uh, you're already on the outside. Uh, it's not a stretch for you to feel this way. Maybe you feel like this daily. Maybe you've been pushed away and when you rank yourself to others, you always rank yourself low. Um, maybe this challenge feels like too much. I want you to know there, there's words of comfort that Jesus has for you. Uh, last week, Keith Evans preached a great sermon on this um, uh, about worry. And uh, if you need to go back and process through that and Jesus' words on that. I have a few more words from Jesus, a few more red letters that I want to draw your attention to. Um, they're not too dissimilar from last week's message. But it comes from Matthew chapter 10, just a few chapters before what we read today. Matthew chapter 10, and, and it, comes, it plays in, or comes out, Jesus says this in the context of he's sending out his disciples on kind of uh, sending them out on their own um, to go out and do mission, sending them out to go and sh- spread the message of this new kingdom that he's ushering in. And he says, when you go out there, it's going to be hard, guys. And he doesn't hold back. He says, some people are going to hate you for this. Some people are going to treat you poorly because of what you, what you bring into their community and this message that you bring. They're not going to like it because this kingdom is different than the world. Uh, they're not going to like you. But he says in the midst of that, if they don't like you, that's okay. They don't like me either. (laughs) And he says, if they don't like you, it's okay because I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch out for you. Your heavenly father is going to watch out for you. Because again, he knows us. He knows knows us by name as we talked about with that sheep. And he says this in Matthew chapter 10. This is how he communicates this to his disciples. Chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of the Father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. So he points to a bird that, uh, that's just very common, very normal. And he says, hey, that bird is okay. And even if that bird dies, it's not outside of God's sovereignty that it did so. And he says, I, your family father knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows the number of hairs. That's a lot. You don't even know the number of hairs on your head. And yet God knows that about you. And he says, that sparrow, uh, is, is, is God knows about that sparrow and is in control and sovereign over all the sparrows. And he says, but you are even more valuable than sparrows. That's just a little bird. I love you. I created you in my image. Uh, you're more important than sparrows. And so 
uh, maybe there's like, well, I was looking for some words of comfort and that didn't quite do it. Um, well, there's a story with this, this verse that's, uh, that I read this week that I thought was so helpful. Um, because this, I'm familiar with this verse because I'm familiar with a hymn that I sang in church growing up. And I remember my mom singing one of her favorite hymns. And um, uh, I remember it being sung at one of my grandparents' funerals. And, um, and it come, this, the, the hymn that I'm familiar with this verse from uh, comes from a woman named uh, Sevilla D. D, D. Martin. And uh, this song was written in 1907. And uh, Miss Martin and her husband, who was a doctor in New York City, and they were doing ministry in the city, and, and through their ministry, and, and um, Dr. Martin um, taking care of, of people and, and then ministering to people in their church, um, they came across a, a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle. And, uh, and they talked about the Doolittles, uh, and they honored them and, and who they were and how they faced life. But um, what was unique about them is Mrs. Doolittle was, uh, was bedridden for 20 years, and uh, Mr. Doolittle was in a wheelchair. And so they were in a tough spot in New York City in 1907. And yet this is what Ms. Ms. Martin said about them. Despite their afflictions, they lived happy Christian lives. Despite their afflictions, they lived happy Christian lives, bringing inspiration and comfort to all who knew them. One day, while we were sitting in the, with the Doolittles, my husband commented on their bright hopefulness and asked them for their secret. And Mrs. Doolittle said, His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he's watching me. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And Miss Martin was so taken by these words, she wrote them down, and, and then she went and wrote a poem that then became a hymn. And uh, in the poem, um, I'll read it for you. And, and even as I, as I read this, I want you to remember, if you, if you hear this teaching from Jesus and you begin to feel like, oh, that's too much, I don't know what to do with that. You begin to say, I, I don't know if I can submit myself to that kind of vulnerability. I am terrified of making myself vulnerable, recognizing that I am frail and fragile and that I need a rescuer. I'm terrified to think of myself as a child and dependent on others and dependent on God in my life. If that feels like a lot for you, I want you to know that God is trustworthy and God is loving and God sees you. God knows your fears and He wants to comfort you. God knows your concerns and He knows your, the challenge of vulnerability in our culture, in our society, for you to take that step towards Him in that, in faith. And he wants you to know that he cares for you. This is the poem that Mrs. Martin wrote to help communicate that. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadow come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he's watching me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He's watching me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He's watching me. Let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear. And resting on His goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path He leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and He's watching over me. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to singing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to Him. For care He sets me free. From care He sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. 
resonate. Let that truth sink in for you today. As Jesus presents to you this challenge to come to him like children, vulnerable and open to his rescue. At the same time, trust him that he knows you well. He knows everything about you. He knows what you need better than you know, better than you know it yourself. He desires to provide for you in the places where you're vulnerable, to care for you, to make you great in his kingdom because he, he sees you as great and wants to invite you in because he loves you and he cares for you. He sees you and he knows you. And the invitation is wide open to you today. Resonate, may we be a church that's about that. That's about that kind of greatness, not the, not the greatness of the world, but this kind of greatness that Jesus invites us into and that he represents and he demonstrates on his own. Resonate, may that be who we are. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would transform us, that we would change like this, like Jesus calls us to, that we would change to see ourselves as little children in need of you, in need of your rescue, in need of your provision for us, your provision of salvation and even provision for our daily needs. God, may we see it like that. God, may these red letters sink into our mind and our heart and transform ourselves the way we see ourselves. May we give up ranking ourselves, comparing ourselves to others, and trying to earn your favor or earn the favor of other people. Instead, leave that world and those, that kind of greatness behind. Instead, walk into your greatness of love and of welcome, of depending on you as our Heavenly Father, trusting you as our God. God, make us those kinds of people as individuals and as a church. We pray towards that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week, Resonate. We love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.